Truth be told, I had every intention this morning of actually going through the entire second chapter of Hebrews, all 18 verses, especially because as you get into the latter half of chapter 2, it has actually a quite remarkable, if, you can, if, I, if I can say this, Christmas sermon in it. As the Hebrew writer, as I'm going to steal my thunder from next week, as he gets into the idea of the reasons why Jesus had to have a body and all that kind of stuff. We'll get there next week. But as it happens, the God's Spirit had other plans for me this week as I was studying and examining this wonderful passage. As I think all of the passages of Hebrews are quite wonderful and filled to the brim with things that I hope to draw to your attention. Actually, it's just these first four verses. That stuck in my mind and were actually burring in my mind such that I was moved by the Spirit to focus on them specifically this morning. This passage, verses 1 through 4 here of chapter 2, constitutes the first of what we will find throughout this series, throughout the book of Hebrews, warning passages that appear throughout the book. You can find similar passages appearing in chapters 3 and 4 and and 5 and 6 and and on and on we go. There's passages that appear after sort of a sort of theological sort of moment where almost as if the preacher or the writer almost applies what he's just been talking about to his church, to his congregation. All of these warning passages that are peppered throughout the book have a similar theme. Most of them all revolve around the idea of pay attention or else you run the risk of drifting. Or else you run the risk of falling away. As previously mentioned a couple weeks ago, there was mounting pressures on this church that the Hebrew writer is writing to. It's a church of predominantly Hebrew Christians. And there's pressures that are pressing in on them from within and from without, leading to several in this church falling away, leaving both the church and the faith altogether. It was their belief that because Jesus, that belief that Jesus is Lord had become such an unpopular, such an unfavorable idea that it would have been perhaps maybe easier, maybe better if we just stopped believing in that. That was their notion. Of course, if you remember, in this day in which this church was existing, Christianity had become a veritable illegal religion, that is, uh, which was an edict passed by the Roman state. Such that if you believed in Christ as Lord, you weren't just making a scandalous notion, you were making an illegal motion. Such that you were threatened under penalty of death unless you recant, unless you renounce that believe. Which is just to say, as I have pondered this past week, that before we judge this church too sharply for the ideas that they were actually considering leaving the faith, perhaps we should pause and consider their situation. Pause and think about what they were enduring. No doubt over the last couple of years, maybe you've noticed this in various news outlets and perhaps you've been, you've seen stories about this as you're scrolling through, uh, endlessly scrolling through Facebook where you've seen various churches and religious organizations seemingly receiving an uptick in mistreatment by others in the world. Churches around this country and around the world have been made to endure a gross amount of hardship recently. My mind immediately thinks of those church bodies that were struggling so mightily in our neighbors to the north in Canada. 
for all the restrictions that they were had to sort of uh, face during all of those years of COVID. I think all of that is just a testament to what the Apostle John talks about in his first New Testament letter. Where he writes, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He kind of puts it bluntly there, doesn't he? Don't be shocked. Don't be caught off guard if the world hates you. Indeed, it should not come as a surprise. But the world reacts with such hatred and vitriol and antagonism towards the church's message. And in fact, I'll just note this verse. You can note it as well. In John chapter 15, Jesus himself warned his apostles of the very same thing. Indeed, in John 15, he's getting ready. Uh, These are some of his last days and hours before he is crucified. And what does he want his apostles to know? Well, to gear up and to buckle up, we might say. John 15, 18, Christ says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world said that, remember the world that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Which is just to say all of this was forewarned by Christ to those who would follow him. That this is expected. This type of antagonism isn't a surprise. It's not something that ought to be shocking. It is part and parcel with the faith. I would say though, just in examining this specific church in the church of Hebrews. That what we have experienced in recent years is nowhere near the level of torment that this Hebrew congregation faced. As I said in sort of the introduction to this series that I believe I, I tend to ascribe to the early dates in terms of the book of Hebrews being written. Which is roughly puts it in the early days of the, of the, of the AD 60s. And which is important because in AD 64 that summer was a particularly grievous summer. You might remember if you've studied history. Maybe you might recall from your history of civilization class. I'm not sure. But a great fire broke out that summer in Rome. In fact, this fire made the city of Rome burn for six days straight. Reducing three quarters of Rome to nothing but ash. And this is during the days in which Nero was losing his mind. So people started blaming Nero. That emperor who's going off of his rocker, surely he in some sort of crazed delusion has started this fire. So in order to save face, in order to sort of save his political sway, if you will, what does he do? He starts blaming the fire on the Christians, on the church. As if this was parts of their religion and of course now arrests begin to start in that summer. Tortures followed, causing much of Roman society and the Roman community to regard the Christians, to regard the church as a danger to the society's health and wellness. Persecutions ramped up, executions ramped up during that summer. Which is when also Christianity was made illegal. And the Roman senator and historian from that very day and age, his name is Tacitus, He wrote an account of all of these events in his book called The Annals. 
And I was very worried earlier in Sunday school that Matt Shively was going to steal my thunder. And he did just a little bit, but it's okay. I'll give him a pass. So if you're in that class, you're going to remember this quote. But Tacitus relays actually giving a firsthand account of what that summer looked like. And here's how he described it. He says, quote, to stop the rumor that Nero had set Rome on fire, this emperor falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. That's what the church was enduring during these days in which this letter comes to them. This is where we get that quote, by the way, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Because here is that very deplorable image of that crazed Emperor Nero sort of finding entertainment by having Christians serve as human torches on the Roman streets. That's persecution. That's what the church in this century was facing. And I do not say all of that to sort of dismiss or disregard any sort of frustration or hardship you face because of your faith. I say all that to say this much more boldly, much more encouragingly, if I can say it that way, is that we have all the reason in the world to hold fast. Hold fast to what we know, to what we believe, to what the gospel informs us, what it announces to us. And indeed, that's sort of the word in which the Hebrew writer so longingly wants to get into the hearts and minds of this church. Hold fast. And in fact, let me just take you on a survey of that. Look at chapter number 3, verse 6. Notice chapter 3 verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Notice verse 14 of the same chapter. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And on and on he goes throughout the rest of the book, encouraging these believers. Believers, yes, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of fires burning around them to say, hold fast to what you know and believe. So how does this message inform us too? How are we to hold fast? And why should we hold fast to what we say we believe? We say we believe that Jesus is Christ and Lord of all, the Savior from our sins. What is it that keeps us from drifting from that belief? Well, I think there's two things here this morning that the Hebrew writer does, not only for this church, but for us as well, that I would say definitely keeps us or definitely could keep us from drifting and should. The first is we are given a grievous warning. A grievous warning. Notice again verses 1. Well, again, notice verse 1. 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This, quite literally, is sort of the watchword, the word of warning that here this writer is admonishing this church to watch out. The writer here, as he is saying, cautions this church as he says, pay much closer attention or else you run the risk of drifting. That phrase there, much closer attention, literally could be translated, be on guard. Stay alert, church. Look out, church. Take extra precautions so that you don't drift away. Otherwise, you run that risk. That risk of drifting, that risk of falling away. And in fact, that word drift or those words that are in our English translations is actually just one word in the Greek. Drift away, it literally just means to slip away or to decline or to make forfeit. And such is what this writer is here declaring is at stake. If you don't stay alert, if you don't pay attention, You run the risk of forfeiting your faith altogether. You run the risk of it running aground, so to speak. You run the risk of it becoming a neglected thing. And in fact, that's what he says. Notice again verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here, this is the devastating and the awful results of drifting away. Slowly but surely, perhaps there's this drift that the writer here is insinuating. But the true end of it all, the culmination of it all, is not just a drift, but is an entire neglect. It is a faith that has become ignored and disregarded altogether. This is the word of warning that here this writer is giving to this church. Pay attention or else you might drift. It's also the word of warning. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here Paul, the apostle, writes a very similar word of warning to his protege, young Timothy, the preacher at Ephesus. And here as he's beginning this charge to this church, he says almost the exact same word of warning to him, charging him. Notice 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hear what Paul is, is encouraging his son in the faith to hold fast to is exactly that. The faith that has been delivered to the saints. The faith that has been come down through the apostles and their preaching is the faith that Jesus himself has declared to the church. And to Timothy here, notice his words. He is given that charge to wage a good warfare against all those thoughts, all those notions, all those opinions, all of those perceived ideas that might threaten your faith and even perhaps make shipwreck of it. And the point being here for Timothy as well as for the Hebrew Christians, 
There is an enemy which threatens to derail your faith. There's an enemy that's real. An enemy that is prowling. An enemy that is painfully, devastatingly real. Which enemy Peter, of course, calls that lion who is prowling, who is seeking, who is hungry to devour all of those to whom he can swindle. Those whom he can deceive. Those whom he can take away their faith. The point is well taken, both by Timothy, uh, both by Paul perhaps, and both by the Hebrew writer, is just that. Be on guard, church. Pay much closer attention. There's a lion on the loose. A lion whose weapons are lies. A lion who seeks in his primary objective always remains to just stir people to drift away. This is what he wants. You know, Satan is pretty smart. He's a cunning guy. A cunning adversary who is coy and crafty with which he wants to deceive. He is not overt. He is subtle and wise and wily. And the ways in which he makes and carries out the scheme of making us to slip. He brings about his falsehoods not with a neon sign that says, Believe in this heresy. No, often it's through the garb of truth that he sneaks in stuff. The threat of drifting away always begins innocently. It begins with a small decision to make a small compromise in one single area. And then eventually that series of decisions, that series of compromises are compounded upon one another until soon... You suddenly realize how far you've actually floated away from what you once believed. And your faith has become chiseled. Chiseled away and chipped away by compromise after compromise. By decision after decision. And it didn't start that way. It started with a small thing. Something that you would just say, this doesn't really matter. It's not super important. It's not such a big deal. And yet suddenly after years of that decision making process. You've steered far off course. Like a rock in a riverbed. Your faith has eroded by the constant barrage of tiny raindrops. You know, in fact, they've done studies. This would take a particular amount of patience, I believe. But they've done a a curiously amount of studies on the effect that a single raindrop can have in terms of eroding rock and sediments on a riverbed. Geologists, they have a special category for this. It's called splash erosion. Which is what happens when a single raindrop falls from a cloud and splashes on a rock. And that mini splash, so to speak, can actually spread sediment and other things that cause erosion erosion in a radius of upwards of two feet. One single raindrop. All from that single drop of rain. Which I would just to say is this, that there's a lesson I think for us, for you. There's never been, I would say, an ideal time to believe in Jesus. There's never been an opportune moment to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord of all. Every single decade of the church, every single age of the church has been an age of difficulty and strife. It's always been grievous. It's always been hard. Which is just to say that every single generation must likewise come to grips with what this word of God entails. 
There's the word of God that has been declared and demonstrated by the son of God. And this word is true. And is, as this Hebrew writer says, it is reliable. And either we will hold fast or we will drift away. Through small decisions. Through small compromises. You know, we in 2022 like to think we are unique. We are the generation that have had it the hardest. <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> Not nearly at all, actually. We're not unique in the fact that we're facing difficulties because of what we say we believe. And in fact, that's always been part of the faith. And in fact, in, in the fact that we are, are facing difficulties because of our faith, we are finding ourselves among the company of the cloud of witnesses that the Hebrew writer will get to in a few chapters. That hall of faith. That is likewise a testimony of what it looks like to truly have faith. If you read that chapter, what do you see? Hardship. Struggle. Loss of everything. Including their own lives. And what is it continually to say? By faith. Holding fast. They had this testimony. I would say, I think this morning, even especially, we are given this word of warning too. To pay much closer attention to what we have heard, to what we say we believe. Precisely because what we have heard is so much better. Because not only have we been given this grievous warning, we have also here been given and we have a great word. Notice again verses 1 through 4 back in our text of Hebrews chapter 2. Notice the Hebrew writer says, First of all, then I urge. Oh, excuse me, that's 1 Timothy. (laughs) Wrong chapter. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. The writer here demonstrates his eloquence and the fact that he indeed has a firm grasp of what he's talking about. As he's building upon what we have just studied in previous weeks, as we examined chapter 1. And he's building upon that, expanding upon that point to prove just how true and just how firm and just how certain the church's confession is. Like in that word at the beginning of this chapter, therefore necessitates that we keep in mind all of what he has just spoken about in that previous chapter. And what did he declare there? That Jesus was the true prophet, the true and better prophet, the true and better son, and the true and better king who has come and not just told, but shown us what the message in the heart of God is. He's declared to us a message, as he says, that is so much more reliable. Again, in verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter, what did he say? In the former days... 
We were spoken to by God in this way. We were given a message that was transmitted by angels and by prophets. And it was spoken to us by such messengers. But as he says there in that first chapter, in these days, we might say, in these last days, how has that message been declared? By his only son. Or as he says here in our text, by the Lord himself. It was declared at first by the Lord. And if you go into all of those passages of scripture and you, you examine them, you read them, you study them, you will notice that it has always been a message of salvation. The message of God to his people has always been a message of salvation and deliverance. And perhaps it looked different back then. They had lots of sacrifices and lots of rituals and lots more liturgy. But regardless, God has always had a heart to deliver his people, to deliver those that he loves from the clutches of sin. That's been his heart. That's who he is. He is a deliverer. He is a rescuer. And the point here that the writer is trying to make is that that message that the angels declared and was further declared by prophets was reliable. All that they conveyed has proven true. It has proven verifiable. You can look at all the accounts, look at all the annals. You can go back to all of those Old Testament scriptures and know that they are certain and true and reliable. Such is why, he says, those who have disbelieved, those who have transgressed, they were declared rightly judged. And you see his point. How much more responsible are we because of the message that has been declared to us, not by an angel, not by some other messenger, but by God himself. It raises the stakes. It raises the bar of our responsibility, he is here saying. It is reliable what they declared. It is way more, much more reliable. And therefore, we ought to pay much closer attention to this word that he has given to us. This word that he has spoken to us by his son. You see, what he does here, this writer, he's not just giving this church a warning and say, you better believe, you better watch out, or else. No, actually, he's inviting them. He's inviting them. He's giving them an invitation to know and believe and hold fast to the far better word of salvation that they've been given in the Lord's Christ, Jesus himself. And not just because he said so, not just because he was this guy who, who was saying all these things, because as he says, that word, that word which we have heard is much more reliable. It is certain, it is firm, it is steadfast, and it is sure. And notice why he says that is so. Notice again verse 3. It was declared. Why is it reliable? Because it was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders. And in fact, what's so remarkable about these two verses verses 3 and 4 is that this writer of Hebrews here in basically a single sentence summarizes the entire New Testament. Essentially that's what he's doing here with these verses. He's summarizing all four of the Gospels and all of the book of Acts. He's saying this is what the church stands on. This is what the church is founded on. What the church rests on. Think about it. 
The gospel message was first declared to us. The gospel of salvation was first spoken to us by Christ the Lord, which is the gospel's. Then it was attested to or confirmed and established in the hearts of all the churches by the apostles in the book of Acts. Which was likewise being certified by countless signs and wonders. You want to know why there's so many miracles in the book of Acts? Because they didn't have a New Testament that they could open. They couldn't turn to the book of Romans. And see Paul's expose about how the gospel is true. They couldn't turn to the gospel of John. And read about miracle after miracle. You know why there's so many miracles in the book of Acts? Because God was giving his stamp of approval on what they are being declared. What's being declared about him. People being raised. People speaking in tongues. And all manner of incredible signs and wonders and miracles. You know what all of them are? They are authoritative proofs that God's word is true. That he can be trusted. That he can be tested. And that he is the true one. The just one. The one whose word is so much better. The reason this congregation of Hebrew Christians could hold fast to this confession was because their faith was firm. It was not make-believe. It was not a fiction. It wasn't the collective imaginations of a couple of delusional men. Their faith was tethered, no, to the word of the gospel. Which was, as here this writer says, it was seen, it was declared, it was heard, it was witnessed. You know, he, as he's writing to this church, he is basically writing to us. We too are part of the company of people, the, the company of believers who've had the word declared to us, attested to us. And generation through generation of the church, we have this great history of the words of the gospel. Those firm words which we have heard being passed down in each generation, holding fast and passing it down to the next. And that is where we find ourselves here this morning. We here this morning have that great news, as here the writer says, of great salvation in Christ alone. What we say we believe is what? That yes, we have a great problem of sin. A sin problem that is way too difficult for you and I to solve. It is way too much for us to manage or get a handle on. And that's why we have an even greater Savior. But to that faith, we are called to hold fast. Or else, we drift. This word is declared, it's tested, it's what keeps us anchored. An image which will appear later on in the book of Hebrews. But like a boat, not securely fastened or properly moored. As Paul says in the book of Ephesians, we run the risk of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What keeps us from drifting is the word. And the spirit of God. Holding fast means staying in the word. It's not some magical thing. It's a thing about opening up the scriptures. And seeing what God has declared about himself. And that again brings us back to this all important watchword. This word of warning that comes from the Hebrew writer. As he says here. Be on guard. Church. 
Give continual heed to these words of Christ above all other words that you might see and hear and be deluded by. Maybe this morning you would say, and we like to say, that you have reason, you have good reason to doubt the words of God. You have a just cause to drift from the faith because of what you have endured, from because of what you have experienced. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis that you just got that's turned your world upside down. Maybe it's a series of family squabbles which continue to cause you unrest and duress. And you would say, how in the world can this be Christian? Maybe you're in the midst of a financial crisis which makes you truly wring your hands. And you're wondering how the next month, how you're going to get by. Maybe you've become unnerved because you've seen the church undergo conflict and stress and duress itself. There's lots of reasons why we could say it's time to move on. It's time to drift. But no matter what, do you know what remains certain? You know what remains true? You know what remains firm? The words of Christ who is our salvation. No matter what occurs in this life, no matter what type of trial you might be facing, no matter what type of upheaval you might be experiencing, the only thing that is certain and sure, no matter what, are the words that Christ himself has declared that he is our savior and king and and he is the one to whom all things and all one day will bow. His words are the words of our salvation. They are our anchorage. They are our safe harbor, our certainty. And I believe God is calling each of us here this morning. That yes, there might be good reasons why we might be tempted to drift. There's lots of things that can deceive us, that can cause us to doubt, that can cause us to loosen our grip on what we say we believe. But you know, matter, no matter what happens, no matter how much life continues to grow in uncertainty, that one thing that is always certain is this, this great salvation that we have in Christ. That's the true and better word that he calls us to hold fast to. And I believe here this morning that Christ is calling each of us in this church to hold fast. Because those who hold fast are those who stand fast. And we know, as the scriptures tell us, that things in this life will grow worse and worse as you see the day approaching Perhaps the noise of torment and heartache and persecution will continue to increase. We fear perhaps what we see in other countries. That one day the liberties by which we are here gathered will be taken away. We pray for those churches. We pray for the church universal. And yet we also know that even if such things come. What is our calling? What is our charge? To hold fast. To the words of our faith. Not because I say so. Not because your mom and dad said so. Not because it's what you've always believed. Why? Because they're firm. They're true. And they're reliable. Rely on the true and better words of Jesus this morning. Let us pray.